So now, the world economy is approximately $80 trillion, of which the U.S. and China each have economies that are roughly $20 trillion each. So combined, the United States and China, the G2, if you will, are, refer, are roughly half represent half of the world's total global economic activity. And those, uh, those numbers are increasing. The Chinese economy continues to expand at a rapid pace and continues to develop technologically. They have an authoritarian regime, one-party system, and they still very much set five-year or ten-year targets and mobilize society to uh, push the boundaries of science and achieve technological goals. In recent years, there's been a 10 uh, areas of uh, technological, technological leadership that the Chinese Communist Party has uh, stated as a goal. And these areas include areas such as robotics, AI, advanced material science, etc. I'll list out the other ones. The United States, for the last hundred years, has had the most dynamic and largest economy, especially post-World War II. We also built alliances globally and, and generally aided the trend towards globalization that we all are living through now. Globalization is actually entering in a phase where it is transcending traditional meanings of nation and nation states and that uh, people are invested in each other's things. So the, so the global 1% is actually nationless. And when So that's why you'll have like, you know, a, te a, a historical Japanese company like Toyota, for example, that has manufacturing all over the world, and and, and manufacturing and distributing within their larger markets, for a, for a lot of reasons. Today, you have an increasingly at, at a, both a global level and within nations rapidly accelerating inequality. In Thomas Pickerding's book's Capital, he documents how some of this stuff, how the increasing accumulation of wealth to the top 1% or top 0.01% is, you've reached a point where the top 1% owns over 50% of the global wealth, meaning the other 99% of humanity shares the remaining $40 trillion. So if you prorate that per capita, which is not how it's done, obviously, it, you're not left with much for the vast majority of humanity. Some today are arguing that that needs to be overthrown, even advocating open and violent overthrowing revolution. However, history has taught us there are lots of un unintended consequences of that sort of solution, and this work well, we'll show and advocate a more 
nuanced position of enhancement, preservation and enhancement of the status quo. In short, today's economic, today's economic interest groups will not be persecuted and instead sold on the idea of orienting themselves towards the service of humanity as opposed to the service of the shareholder. Now today, inequality is not just among the have-had-nots, but in each nation you have this trend of the rich getting richer and the middle class stagnating or worse, falling off of the middle class and down into the lower middle classes. This is troubling for a number of reasons, not the least of which it's very distracting for humans and it creates lots of societal ills, crime, health problems, and general dysfunction. Also today we have increased polarization in our politics. This is a result of, well, at the end of the day, people not doing their homework and not being aware of the facts. And in today's internet hyper-connected world, it's very difficult to discern facts because you have so many different actors, be it state-sponsored, be it anarchist, anarch anarchist groups, or lone wolves that are sowing disinformation, developing followings, weaving the followings together so that you have these groups of people angry, distrustful of others, and, you know, in the case of the United States, polarization on the left and the right, team blue, team red, Democrat, Republican. All of this is a very bad distraction towards trying to actually have the discussion that's right in front of us, and it's always been the problem the economic problem. The economic problem, chapter two. The economic problem is interesting in that some will debate whether it has as much importance as, as other issues. And I think for me, the uh, talking points need to shift away from historical narratives. In other words, we're not talking about reaching a state of nirvana because people are materialistically satisfied. No. What, what's being advocated here is an acknowledgement of a baseline basket of goods and services that will be from this point on, referred to as the American Middle Class Lifestyle Basket of Goods and Services, or AMC. This AMC constitutes, a, based on data accumulated in our modern economy, what the wants and needs of humanity, or in this case, Americans, are. We can see it. We can see it in real time. And we have an idea of the trends because of our use of credit and other things that allow us to see really not only the base needs for life, but also the wants, the, the desire. So we have an idea. We also, the, the, the problem is, it is an economic problem. Most of the societal ills today, it's tension and frustration and anger because the numbers don't work and the trends don't look good. We see 
a world, uh, in the United States, in the case of the United States, where it requires north of $100,000 a year to make ends meet, meaning housing and transportation and the utilities and other things that is necessary for a modern middle-class lifestyle, yet the wages, the medium U.S. income, is, is $35,000 a year. And that means that half of the working Americans earn less than $35,000 a year. This is fundamentally, the market is not reaching the equilibriums as a traditional economic theory would predict. Traditional economic theory would suggest that when people's incomes are low or stagnating, stagnating, stagnating that the basket of goods and services that they need and want would, would adjust downward so that the, 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 so that the market could afford it, could clear. But what we have now is vested interest groups and global capital, globalism, that own production all around the world. And they collude to the point where they're supporting quarterly financial earnings or goals or shareholder value. And so you'll find capacity constrained. You'll find bottlenecks. With COVID last year, we even saw shockwaves that we're still working through now of supply chains where you couldn't get certain things. That's, this is not a real scarcity problem. It's an artificially created scarcity problem, and it's created to benefit those invested in today and the economy of today. So that the problem is not one of scarcity. The problem is not one of impossibility. The problem is one of lack of leadership, one of lack of vision, one of lack of someone attempting to quantify what it is humanity wants and needs, which this work will seek to lay bare, the quantification of the American middle class lifestyle, extrapolated out to, I just assumed, a steady state of 10 billion people worldwide. So in short, we're going to be able to tell you what it would cost to provide everyone with a good life. Good life here is defined by at least the American middle class lifestyle. And oh, by the way, to be clear, humanity has figured out so much. We've figured out so much science, so much technology, that enables us to render easily to the marketplace things like a Lexus, or high-end housing units, or premium computing technologies and handheld devices and phones and such. This is easy. We've done the science. We have it on the shelf. We have the files. We have the prints. We know how to do this. Now, the challenge is to sell the idea of having all of this finished work, all of this science and technology serve human happiness as opposed to vested interest in shareholders. And I believe it's a, it's a sell that can happen. And I also lay... so so. The, the tagline of this book also is, we can, we should, we must. Now, so you just heard me shine a little bit of light, we'll get into more detail later, of the we can. It is possible. There is no physical constraint. There is no real scarcity. It's only artificial scarcity to, to bolster prices for vested interest groups and bolster control because money and control are powerful things. And to the, to the winner go the spoils. And there's a lot of incentive for people to continue the status quo.
And you see a viciousness emerging where people are willing to fight and take up arms and, 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 and do harm to their fellow man to preserve or increase their share of the power, be it for ego reasons, narcissistic reasons, sexual reasons, or fear, or anxiety-based reasons, or survival instincts. The viciousness of humanity has been clear over the ages. We are willing to go there to get our piece of the pie. So the problem, the main problem that faces humanity today is an economic problem. If we address the economic problem and don't get distracted in this world of disinformation and propaganda and people deliberately trying to sabotage uh, industries so that they can benefit in some way or they can weaken their adversary in some way, we got to stay focused on the economics, making the numbers work for all of humanity, doing the doing the quantification, laying bare, laying bare a vision, and then orienting our global economy to those to those goals, and doing that quickly, by the way, because the human expectations have risen in this modern world, this modern hyperconnected world. We expect more, and we want it now. We don't want to wait 10, 20, our lifetime, or next generation. We want it now, and we can do it. We should do it because we see all around us the consequences of not addressing this problem. It manifests as racism. It manifests as crime. It manifests as uh, chaos. It manifests in violent overthrows. It manifests in devious plots and schemes, and it certainly manifests itself in corruption, which is very, very deep in our modern economy, be it on the Republican and Democratic side, talking about the United States, but that also is, is worldwide a problem. Vested interest groups eat at the trough of taxpayers and know how the rules, write the rules, and benefit disproportionately and increasingly disproportionately from the proceeds. So we should do this because... <coughs> It's the right thing for humanity. And what I mean by that is, if you address and orient the global economy and the global supply chain to serve humanity, the reason you should is you've created this baseline health of the species where people feel economically secure, they have safe, clean, desirable places to live, they have a buffer of privacy that enhances their ability to think and be centered, they have transportation that allows them ultimate mobility and freedom. And they have all the utilities that work, that are provided and rendered in such a way that doesn't destroy the environment. And we're going to get at that later called eco-pragmatism, eco where we're going to go after these economic goals, but also bake into the cake the assumption that we're not going to destroy the environment doing it. And we're not going to be rigid with that. There's always trade-offs. So, so that's hence the term echo-pragmatism. But we should do this because by addressing and correcting the economic problem, you have increased human happiness, you have increased peace and stability, you have also created massive bandwidth for people to contribute 
to whatever's going to come next in terms of challenges or scientific endeavors or engineering or science or construction, they'll have the benefit to, to, to think about those things in a, in a more creative way. They won't be distracted all the time with the economic stress and anxiety. It's permanent and, it, and it's really, really harsh for most of humanity. In addition to fixing the economic problem, and, and related to the economic problem, is the, hello, come on. Is the, oh, oh, you're gonna attack me? Oh. Ah, yes, yes. So in addition to the uh, solving the economic problem, because we should for the sake of human happiness and bandwidth creation, it also allows us to address the other major problem related to the disinformation, related to the vested interest groups in that we're in an ocean of bullshit. And I should pick a more technical term for this book, but bullshit really fits it quite nicely. Everyone is full of shit because they've been lied to so much and they feel threatened themselves. So they have to defend their little hill. That's, that's how people get so nasty. When I, when I peel back more and more, I talk to people, they're scared they're going to lose their job. Like on the Democrat side, you'll have more people that work for teacher roles and things like this, government posts, or even increasingly in the medical community, where because it's becoming more and more of a big government institution with money sloshing around, people will dig in on the status quo of that or dig into their job to protect their job. And on the other side, I've seen Republican types that benefit from the wealth and the investments and, you know, the lower taxation rates and they have a good life and they expect everyone else to just you know rise up by their bootstraps if you will and so they too they feed themselves bullshit to fortify that and are willing to take up arms and defend this threat to their wealth and their peace of mind so it's it's a dangerous situation that's again related to the economics the bullshit is thick because the bullshit justifies all the vested interest groups and sells the narratives of the vested interest groups so that the vested interest groups can perpetuate what they do and continue to grow and get more wealthy and more powerful. So the bullshit supports the very same inequality that we all claim to be upset about and that we suffer from. Now it should be said that solving the economic problem and having people be materialistically satisfied at some level, that you never ever get full satisfaction. You don't automatically get pure happiness, if such a state even is realistically to postulate existing. This will not make people happy. People have to choose to be happy. The assumption instead is not of this state of nirvana created by solving the economic problem once and for all for humanity, or not even once and for all, that's a bad choice of words. It's providing a bridge to whatever's going to be next, a nice 500-year bridge, the next 500 years, because the first 500 years got us to this point, where we invented all these technologies, discovered all the science, figured out physics, chemistry, biology, gen genetic engineering, built computers, built transports, went from wood to coal and steam, to electricity and all of this stuff is the last 500 years right so imagine if we 
start articulating and presenting a vision of a better economic reality and orienting this vast juggernaut of an economy and supply chains that we have created to support the last, you know, it is the capstone of the last 500 years. Imagine if we harness and, and orient that this this juggernaut to serve to now serve and and bolster human happiness and making the numbers work for humanity so that you're not having this global suffering all the time and the distraction and the danger that comes of the frustration and when the numbers don't work and people are miserable economically or just left out they become vicious it seeds discontent it is why people get so vicious in war. So, getting to the must. We're getting into the must. So we can, and that it's possible. We should, because it is the right thing to do. And it will help with all of the things we say we don't want today. Including crime. Including desperation. Including poverty. Including the culture of poverty. It addresses... The ecological destruction that many of you get on the high horse about now. This all is the should. We must, because if we don't, we're in serious danger. Already, one could make an argument that you have a huge, over half of humanity living in forms of highly bureaucratic and authoritarian states that are now harnessing the powers of surveillance state technologies and and all the, the latest cutting-edge coming surveillance technologies, including these phones we hold in our hands. And they it's making it almost impossible to re- resist, organize any kind of alternative dialogue. It is becoming one way or the highway. And in and, 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 and China, for example, with the Uyghurs, they're not only being identified using surveillance state technologies and arrested, but they're being placed into what they call re-education camps, which are basically concentration camps. They're prisons. And this is documented. People have gone and, and escaped these things. This is something that's documented. It's happening right now. And in Russia, right next to China, similar thing. You have what some would describe as a mafia or mob state, and it basically is an authoritarian regime. And there's never a shortage of soldiers or minions. There's never a shortage when you control the economic power. You dole out some money or dole out a company or dole out a a role or a job, a post. You have willing participants because they're selfishly just interested in their material needs. And in this world that we live in today, when you have that material wealth, you are able to attract sexual partners, and live a good life, if you will. You get all the spoils. And so people are incentivized at a very reptilian level and every other level of consciousness. This is the nature of authoritarian regimes. It benefits a small, very small group, and they will viciously oppress anybody who challenges them in any kind of way. And it's becoming really, really easy in this modern era to nip things in the bud way, way, way ahead where the person doesn't even know that they've been detected as a threat. So this is real. And the alternative to that is our loose 
what I'll loosely refer to as the West or the U.S., which is really not structured at all. We're in fact we're very disorganized right now. We have no identity of what we're trying to achieve. We just know it's not that yet, but it could be. We are definitely toying with it. COVID showed us what a totalitarian state would would look like in the United States, and it's it's ugly. You got people fighting over masks, and no one's allowed to question this. What the hell? Why are we still doing this? Like. I, you know, initially when it happened, of course, when the novelty of the coronavirus was new, people didn't know. You know, you know, leadership message coming down. Uh, again, people feel like they can trust these organizations because they aren't ripe with corruption, and they're uh, they're able to disseminate information about something, and people would respond accordingly. And we did respond. We all left our jobs. Many of us, like myself, lost our jobs. And we had our masks and, you know, even got vaccinated eventually a lot of us did. But you saw a sneak preview of what a totalitarian state looks like in our country. Where people are now still fighting. They're clinging on this narrative because of the corruption involved. You know, states like New York and California, they wanted to be made whole. They wanted to gain financially from this in a big way to clean up their pension problems and their other, you know, serious economic and financial problems because they are more or less failed states. If we get into it and be honest about it, especially if the trend of people leaving these areas accelerates any, any more than it already has. Why would somebody live in, in, in a city, a crowded city that's, that's dirty and has crime problems, when, when they, in a hyper-connected world and remote capabilities, they can just live somewhere more safe and live in an area that has rules that support Second Amendment rights and such so, so, so that no one can come and physically take it from you in the middle of the night. So we're very close to being an authoritarian state ourselves, and we represent the only realistic uh, opposition that could be garnered against such a reality. So that's why the must is very important in this. We have, we can solve economic problem for everybody, for humanity, solving by solving here in the United States first. We should because it is the right thing to do. It's not right to turn an eye on the suffering, the suffering that economic problems renders on the individual and the health of society. It's, 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 the, it's, it's just morally wrong, especially when you can. When you can make it right and you don't, that's, that's just not right. And must because it's a real, real danger. Real danger to all of our freedoms if we do not address this economic problem. And it will hit us in the least expected way. It could be the form of a virus or a series of coordinated terroristic attacks. It could be attacks on our infrastructure. It could be just a constant dripping, a guerrilla-type warfare situation or guerrilla tactics just constantly nibbling and biting at the status quo. We have to get the economics right or this will be our dystopian nightmare reality.